TED Audio Collective. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi, everyone. You're listening to HBS After Hours. I'm Young Ni, and I'm here tonight with Mihir and Felix. How are you guys? Good. How hey, are you? How are you, Felix? So I have to start by asking you, have you guys deleted your Facebook yet? <laughs> you know, uh, if I was anywhere near active on Facebook, I set up a Facebook account like eight months ago, and I have not returned to it since. Um, so I have not done anything, um, but it's just in... Are you on mode. any social media? I, you know, it's ridiculous. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, and I only did it because of this book that came out last year. Okay. Because I was told I had to, but I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm just pimping the book <laughs> on social media, and I know that's not the right thing to do, but that's all I know how to do. So I, I'm not doing things right. And on Facebook, I find it the least useful of the three. So I've, I do more on Twitter and LinkedIn. I don't do anything on Facebook. How about you, Felix? Are you? So I had a, I had a wimpish reaction. I, I thought about I thought about deleting it, and then uh, I Googled, how do you delete your Facebook account? And the explanations were really long. It's, like, not straightforward. So then I did sort of a halfway thing. I deleted the app from my phone. (laughs) 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 Uh, But I, you know, I left my account alive. And you, young me? I I am on Facebook, but not as young me. I know. Oh, and wait, wait! Don't skip over that. As not me. What? What does that mean? Well, I don't. I have a different name. You have a name. fake profile. You have no, an avatar. It's, it's an it's avatar. Me. It's my nickname. But you know, and so oh, how about so pictures? you're not searchable by anybody. That's right. Well, but you get to connect with your loved ones. Exactly. But my rule is, I can never have more than nine friends. So, for example, when my niece got old enough to be on Facebook, I had to delete my brother-in-law. <laughs> the Game of Thrones on Facebook. Yes. <laughs> There's only it's so just, much. It's the way it works. Yeah. But anyway. Oh, All God. right. So, Heartbreaking. <laughs> did you guys bring stuff to talk about? Yes. I thought um, we could do a little hot take on Zuckerberg. Uh, oh, so we're going to talk about Fabulous. Yeah. yeah on Facebook. Capitol Hill. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a little go. bit of an update from where we were a month or two ago. Okay. So, yeah, I wanted to get your take on what you thought about his performance um, and, you know, what we learned from it. Excellent. Okay. And then you, Felix? And I was thinking, what's the most boring topic that I can think of? <laughs> since there's been so much excitement on this podcast already. And so I want to talk about the post office. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. 
Okay, so Mahir, why don't you get us started? Yeah. So, um, you know, on our first podcast, we actually talked about Facebook. And since then, of course, a lot of things have happened. And in the last two days, Mark Zuckerberg has been on Congress testifying. People are obsessed with it. And it was monitored in a really, really interesting way. Um, And it was just such an event, an event in the world of business, an event in the world of media. And so I wanted to get your take on what you thought about how he did, about the line of questioning, what we learned. Um, Yeah, so I wanted to get your sense of that. And then I want to hear more about where you think this whole Facebook thing is going. So go ahead, Young Me, you first. So I didn't watch all of it, but I watched parts of it. And I have to say the parts I watched gave me that sense I get when I watch my son's try to explain to their grandparents how the smartphone works. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <Yes. laughs> you know, you just got the sense of a whole group of 20th century lawmakers trying to understand a 21st century world. Yeah. And so at one level, I found it deeply disconcerting that if there is going to be regulation, it's going to be in the hands of a group of lawmakers who yeah. were clearly out of their comfort zone. I mean, it was fascinating to watch because they would ask a question And in some cases, he would give an answer that was maybe slightly technical. And you could tell that they had had these pre-prepared questions that their staff had written for them. And so they didn't want to reveal that they had no idea what he was talking about. So there was no follow-up. The whole thing was just a weird sort of kabuki theater. Not to say that it was meaningless. I think it was meaningful. And so what was the meaning? So our political system moves at a glacial pace except under circumstances when it becomes really clear that public opinion has shifted in a dramatic and widespread way. And in those cases, sometimes you see pretty rapid things. You know, so a few weeks ago, you gave the gay marriage example, right? To me, it feels like regulation is inevitable. What do you think, Felix? So I think my my impression, I mean, preparedness of the lawmakers, I think I would have have exactly the same reaction. They, you know, don't quite understand for completely obvious reasons, and their 45-year-old staff members understand a little better, but not at any depth. But I thought, actually, he did pretty well. And and I had the same impression. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg was on the news hour the the night before, mm-hmm. and and it was interesting that, generally speaking, sort of a similar response and and quite effective. What I liked about both Mark and Cheryl's performances, it 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 stood by the basics of their business. So there there are some issues about what Facebook is and how it makes money that are non-negotiable and they didn't waver and I and I really and I really like that. And then I think uh, one of the big challenges is you talk to all these different audiences. You think yeah. you talk to the committee, but of course you talk to the capital markets at the same time. You talk to the two, two billion people who use Facebook. And then you talk to everyone who works for Facebook, who's engaged daily and that you know, having these three, four conversations at one and the same time is just incredibly difficult. And I think against this backdrop, I I thought they, both of them actually yeah. did pretty well. Well, to your point, the stock went up. The stock went up. Yeah. In yeah. other words, yeah. the capital markets found his performance deeply reassuring. Yeah, like five points up. I mean, it, it yeah. was a, and it had been a little bit of a tailspin, so they found it very reassuring. Yeah. Um, I thought a couple of things. One is I think um, – yeah, the legislators were not fantastic. Although I will say Kamala Harris is a bit, <laughs> she's a bit of a badass. Um, I thought what was impressive about him is I think he took responsibility unequivocally, kind of 101. He did it. And Sandberg did it too. 
Um, so I thought that was really, really good. I mean, I think the question going forward is, what is the regulation? And what happens to the business model? Maybe one of my favorite moments is when he was asked, so what about regulation? And in particular, what about the, you, you might remember, the European Directive yes, on, on yeah. Privacy Protection kicks in uh, on May 25th. So this is now just a couple of weeks, uh, for a couple of weeks from now. When he was asked, did the Europeans get it right? And then I think maybe to some people's surprise, he said, yeah, the Europeans did get some things right. Yeah. And, and so practically that would mean everything is opt-in, default is going to be your opt-out, and you have, the company has to have a very pretty narrow business reason why it manages your personal data. So yeah. if that's the kind of regulation that he now seems to be sort of okay with, that was actually, to me at least, that's this big, was pretty big news. That's pretty big news. I think we need to be really careful what we ask for, though, right? I believe that regulation is going to make Facebook even more dominant. I really do. So Facebook uses three kinds of data to power its advertising engine. The first is data that Facebook collects, not just on Facebook, but everywhere else you're online. The second kind of data is third-party data. The third kind of data is data that its advertisers bring to the table. Three types of data to create one of the most sophisticated advertising engines in the world. So now what we're going to do is build a really tight wall around that. And we're going to make it much more difficult for data to get in and out. All right? I think if this had happened to Facebook five years ago, it would have been a very bad thing. Today, if it happens today and these walls come down, it basically locks in their dominance. Imagine if you are a tiny competitor and you want to be the next Facebook. You can't bootstrap your way there the way that Facebook did in because you're going to be hit with the same regulations. I hadn't really thought about the dominance point. Um, but isn't there like a hit to profitability if you can't monetize in the same way? So it's going to be expensive for them to comply. Yeah. But we know, guys, whenever an industry gets a bunch of regulations slapped on it, who protests? All the big players. And then what happens? The big players are the only ones with the resources to comply. So who suffers? The small yeah. players. Yeah. Yeah. Dodd-Frank was supposed to punish big banks. Who suffered? Small banks, banks yeah. and all the big banks just adapted. Yeah. I believe what's going to happen in Europe, for example, if you are a, a small publisher, the challenge you face in developing traction is going to be so hard. Whereas the first time you use Google or Facebook yeah. after these things are enacted and they say, well, we need to collect some data in order for you to continue to use our platform, people are going to say, okay, of course I'm going to use Google. So the big players are going to get all the opt-ins early on. I see, I see. And the small players are not. I think what's interesting about Young Lee's argument is uh, it's kind of a, it's a great argument. It's like a classic regulation argument, which is the incumbents are the winners. Um, and I think that could still reinforce Facebook's dominance. What I'm saying is if someone were to try to build an advertising network to rival the quality of Facebook's, it would be very hard to do it. Let me try one last argument on you. Today, when you go to Facebook's uh, privacy controls and you say, you know, should people find me with the help of the email address that I provided when I first sign up? You can choose everybody find, finds me, the rest of humanity, uh, friends of friends or friends. There's no choice that says, no, I mm -hmm. don't actually want people to find me. And so 
I, I, I see how you're thinking about the degree of competition between Facebook and everyone else. But maybe this will be a push for Facebook to really make clear what's the incremental value that they provide for the data that I give up. So mm -hmm. under European rules, the default is no one can find that email address that you gave Facebook and no one can find that picture. And, you know, it's in Facebook's court to make an argument about, oh, and actually here is the value to users if you let your email be searchable or yep. if you... And, and, and so maybe less competition but better quality. Mm -hmm. so that sounds like not right, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you... Here's the part I do agree with you on. I, I do think it's possible that you will see their business shrink Yeah. for all of the reasons that you said. So there will be people that will monitor their privacy controls with much greater rigor than we see right now. But what I'm saying is something different. Yeah. I see things getting locked in in a really particular way that makes me nervous. I'm not, I'm not against regulation. I think it's inevitable. Makes you nervous being young me or being Facebook? It makes me nervous being young me. So, so I don't know. I hope you're right. I'm just sharing my anxiety. I'm sharing my anxiety. Yeah. So the big question is, do we talk about this long there enough so that we don't have to talk about there the post go. office? Okay, Felix, the post office. The of post things. office. What a riveting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, the motivation to talk about the post office in part has to do with uh, the president's tweet about the benefits that Amazon gets uh, from, from the post office. So uh, I'll, I'll quote to get us started. One of the tweets read, only fools or worse are saying that our money losing post office makes money with Amazon. And then in all, uh, all capitalized, they lose a fortune and this will be changed. So is that right? Well, if it's in all caps, it must be right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, so look, it is, there's a grain of truth, right? Which is... Uh, do they lose a lot of money, post office? Yes. Do they charge uh, Amazon perhaps less than they could? I think that's also possibly yes. Do they lose money by doing business with Amazon? I think the answer to that is no. And so I think that's subtle enough for the president's purposes. <laughs> you know, which is, you know, what's happening here, as I understand it, Felix, is fundamentally Amazon's using the post office for the last mile and really very little else. And so um, that's a very valuable thing um, to Amazon. And from the post office perspective, you're really building off its fixed cost network. So I think it's both possible. And in fact, I think it's likely that they are uh, making money in the sense they're covering more of their fixed costs by doing the last mile service, but that Amazon might be willing to pay more. And that as a consequence of that, implicit in that is the first class mail is subsidizing Amazon and implicit in that is we're all subsidizing Amazon. So look, I don't want to agree with the president on this. I think there's a grain of truth in there that there is something, at least that's my instinct. If you're Amazon and you're looking at a delivery chain, parts of which you can do very efficiently and parts of which are enormously expensive, and then you look over there and there's the U.S. Postal Service, that will just take that tiny piece of your delivery chain, the piece that's the most inefficient for you to do and the most expensive for you to do, that last mile delivery in hard-to-reach places where it makes no economic sense for you to do it, and they charge you a price. Of course you're going to, you know, is that Amazon's fault? The U.S. Postal Service is so 
massively dysfunctional in, in so many ways that it's, it's hard to blame Amazon for this. So you were exactly right. The, the, the question is basically, so the, the postal service has massive fixed costs, the buildings and the trucks. Now, the allocation of fixed cost is, of course, not something that the post office can decide itself. So there's a regulatory commission, yes, right. and a little while back, roughly 10 years, they decided that 5.5% uh, of fixed cost should be allocated to packages. Right. Now, 5.5% was perhaps not unreasonable at the time yeah. when they decided, but since then, the letter delivery business has become much smaller and the package business has become much larger. And so yeah. you would adjust over time. The regulatory commission hasn't done that. The board, that there's a board for the post office that has, at this point in time, zero appointed members because <laughs> President Obama couldn't get anyone on the board and President Trump hasn't gotten around to nominating his people. So there's no, there's no board oversight yeah. either. But what I find interesting about this is, and I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a general pattern that when we think about public services, we're, we're distrustful. And so then we burden these businesses with insane regulation and poor governance. And then we complain, oh, my God, you're doing a poor job. Yeah. How can that be? We need even more regulation and we need even more oversight. And in the end, you basically cannot run the post office. So why is the post office losing so much money? Well, one reason is maybe not all 150 million businesses and addresses and households serve yeah. to be six, six days a week, six day yeah. service. Like this is the sense in which I think we're, we're very quick at sort of pointing out what's wrong with these businesses, but they operate under insane constraints. Yeah, yeah. no, I think that's right. But let me ask both of you, what, what is, if you ran the post office, what's the single change you would make? Is it five-day delivery? Is it closure? No. What, what is the single, what are the biggest changes you would make? The tricky thing about the post office is there are parts of it that are completely obsolete. And then there are parts of it that I think are absolutely necessary. So in urban areas, for example, we don't need six-day delivery to every household. I mean, there's so many private solutions. There are other parts of the country where there aren't good private solutions. And so the post office becomes much more of a critical lifeline. So I don't think you could privatize it altogether because then you would be left without any solutions or very expensive solutions in certain parts of the country that need it most. I think you have to dramatically restructure it, shrink it down fundamentally change the operating model around it. I think right now the Postal Service is not only dysfunctional, but it perpetuates such an economy of waste. I mean, just think about how much of the mail, put packages aside, how much of the mail that you receive is junk? 50%? What is it? I mean, just think of, think of what's happening. We cut down a tree... We mill it into paper. We print a bunch of marketing material on it. We load it onto a truck. We ask a whole bunch of mail carriers to deliver it to households all across the country just so that we can receive it and throw it away. But so let me ask you this. As both of you know, I, I grew up in Switzerland. Other than the size, Switzerland and the U.S. are, are, are quite similar. So there's a skeptical attitude towards government in general. But what really surprised me when I first moved to the U.S. is that 
where I grew up, there was this distinction between the government, meaning politics, and then the state-owned enterprises that are mm. run in a decent fashion. There is a, a general trust that these businesses do a good job, and as a result, regulation is present but light touch, and then they can do many things that I think are just unimaginable. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to make a joke about the cultural tropes on Swiss efficiency. Uh, <laughs> refrain, refrain from doing that. Uh, um, yeah, no, I think it's a really it's a really interesting question. So I came to this country when I was eight, and I thought it was magical how mail arrived, and it was as efficient as it was. Like the, there is a miracle of like a letter two days later You're showing sure up somewhere this else. This was decades ago. <laughs> well, but it's still true, right? What is the rationale for these public institutions, right? There is that it binds us together, which is somebody living in the rural area deserves just as much service as you do as a cosmopolitan urbanite. That's an important principle. And that there's something in that principle that's worth salvaging. I'm totally on the side of the post office. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot create crazy constraints on what they can and what they cannot do in ways that then make it almost impossible to perform well. And then we say, on see, we need even more constraints. We need even more regulations because you're not doing well. To me, this is the perfect example of dysfunction at every level. And to your point, it's a case of taking an organization and setting them up to fail. Yeah. We have that's done what, everything exactly right. to get yeah. in the yes. way, that's right. you yeah. know, and it's it's interesting because coming on the heels of our Facebook conversation about the, com- you know, the conversation about do we trust our lawmakers to impose a set of regular, you know, what you're seeing in the case of the post office is just this executed at, at its very, very worst. On that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> Felix for Postmaster Okay, so... Um, all right, so did you guys bring in your picks for tonight? I, I think we you did. You both did? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get into a couple of updates, <laughs> the first is, Mihir, last week you talked about University Challenge. Yes. I saw it. Yeah. I went on YouTube. It's ridiculously hard. Mihir, I can't hard. even understand the questions. <laughs> it's so hard. No, it's some of the hard. questions you can't even understand. <laughs> and then the crazy thing is sometimes he's not – it's like a multi-part question. Sometimes the questions are paragraphs long. And it's a multi-part <laughs> question, and you're still trying to figure out what he's asking, and someone will buzz, buzz in I, to crazy. answer. It's crazy. That's what I love about it. It's just absurd. At one point – He's showing images of different kinds of arrhythmias, <laughs> and they have to identify the different kinds of arrhythmias. I'm just telling you, it's crazy. It's so that's my oh, first I'm update. I'm so delighted. My yeah. second update is, Felix, last time you talked about Artsy. I did, yes. Well, <laughs> it prompted an email from a friend of mine <laughs> who said, Artsy awesome. I'm an investor and they do have a business model. Remember you were freaking <laughs> yes, out that yeah. he said recurring revenue SaaS software as a service business oh, model paid okay. for by the galleries so you can rest oh, easy. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That's Those great news. Okay, so Mihir, what do you have to recommend? You know, so I love food uh, and people often ask me for recommendations specifically about Indian food because I'm Indian of origin and I always have nothing to say because I never eat out. 
Indian food. Why would I eat out Indian food when I can get it at home? <laughs> it's like way better. Uh, and I don't like Indian food when I eat it out. So now I finally have a recommendation. And it's a great restaurant. It's called Indian Accent. It started in Delhi uh, by a guy named Manish Marotra. He's got a New York branch now on 56th Street. He's got one in London. And it elevates Indian cuisine to a whole different level. And it's fine dining-esque, right? So it's not Dava street food. It's really inventive and delicious. So, for example, he's got an amuse-bouche, which is a little piece of naan stuffed with goat cheese, which is something you would never find in India, but it's really interesting. explodes in your mouth. He's got this There's incredible... There's no goat cheese in India? It's just, it's, you know, it's more of a paneer place. It's not a... Oh, uh, oh. Yeah, I don't exactly know all the reasons <laughs> for why that is. I'm um, getting so hungry. <laughs> I'm telling you, you should go. It is delicate. It's interesting. So now I finally have a recommendation when somebody asks me for Indian food, and I want to share it with the world. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Okay. Can't wait. Feelings. So I noticed uh, this is a podcast by three business school professors, and we never recommended a business book. I thought that was quite interesting, <laughs> actually. <laughs> and I know the, the podcast is supposed to be about the connection between society and business. So I thought I would recommend a business book that I started reading. Actually, I haven't quite finished I'm yet. I'm stunned and, that you read and, uh, business books, period. <laughs> so okay. maybe it's the title. The, the, the title is Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business oh. by Bob Atkinson and uh, Mike Lind. And sort of the, the starting point of the book is that everybody loves small business. And small means very many different things, right? Small can mean entrepreneurial, small can mean, you know, the little bodega around the corner and so on and so on. And so what, what they essentially do is they look at some of the spillovers from small and big businesses. How innovative are they? Oh, what is the likelihood that they create many jobs? Uh, what do they do for customer experience? And so on and so on. And, and in a nutshell, we're confusing small and young. Yeah. Everything we like comes from young businesses. And then the bulk of what we like is just big business. Yeah. Big business does innovation. Yeah. Big business creates jobs. Big yeah. business does everything we want business to do. But if you, if you want a flavor other than big business, pick a young firm. By young, yeah. you mean new. New, yeah. yes. Yeah. In the yeah. first yeah. three years interesting. before oh, they die. Interesting. That, sounds, so, that sounds really good. It's a really interesting book. Excellent. All right. So my recommendation tonight is a browser extension. <laughs> I know. It's so, like so ex cool I, I know. <laughs> this is the sexiest podcast ever. Don't you agree? Yeah, okay. All right. But, okay. but you have to write this down. The name of the extension is Ghostery. Ghost, like Casper the Ghost, G-H-O-S-T-E-R-Y. And it might not even be the best in class, but it's so simple to use. And it just does one thing. And that is, once you install it, it creates a little button in the corner of your browser, whatever browser you use. And every website you go to, it tells you all of the third-party parties that that website is sharing your data with. Wow. Oh, okay. So if you go, what news sites do you browse? So go to your news site, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, go to it, wherever you want. And it's a surreal experience to read an article about them blasting Facebook for sharing information. Okay. 
and you click and you see a number 36 because they're sharing with 36 different third party and you can see what all of them are, including Facebook, and you can turn them off. One by one. You can block them one by one. Wow. But even if you don't, just to be on the internet and watching that thing spin. So any news site you go to, whether it's Fox News or the New York Times, it will be in the 20s or 30s. And it just gives you a sense of everybody sharing data. So you can go after Facebook all you want, but data is being disseminated and you are... Really, so what's really it called? Can you say again? Ghostery. G-H-O-S-T-E-R-Y. It takes 20 seconds to install. It's super, super easy to use, but it will change the way you experience the internet. So I did, I, I did go on the HBS website, and to my relief, one. And it's our own internal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Isn't that good. nice? Yeah, so just well done. Yes. All right. Squeaky clean. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. This is HBS After Hours. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.